This is Inside Indie Games. Join us behind the scenes to see what it takes to create a great indie company and to craft the games that people long to play. Without something to show, you cannot have a Kickstarter. You can't just go in there with a, a drawing of what it may be like. There is literally stipulations around what you can do. So yeah, getting the kind of product as, as fully developed, a really good video, and just making sure you have opportunities to reach out to people personally wherever possible. This is Phil Charnock of Draw and Code. They're a company who raised over £25,000 on Kickstarter to fund their first product, which was called Swapbots. In this episode, Phil brings some great advice for those interested in funding future projects. Draw and Code are a pretty interesting and unique company too. Phil describes them as creative content marketers who stay ahead of the curve by embracing immersive technology and spatial computing. But like any company, revenue and turnover are vital in order to survive and thrive long term. And the bulk of Draw and Code's revenue still comes from client work. I was keen to find out more about how they sourced that work in the early days and how they've continued to ensure that they find interesting collaborators and partners who are a good fit for them. Well, our initial clients at Draw and Code started out as older contacts that we had. That as the you know, we all brought them to the table from previous companies, previous work we'd done. And so that's how it initially started. I'm actually sat in in, in the office that I'm sat in here. I have a whiteboard of clients and potential clients kind of alongside me. And they're coming from all over the place. We've got some international ones now. So so that was a different stage for us where we then started to go, okay, we need to shout about what we're doing. And video games companies and kind of interactive companies are often very good at talking about themselves within their own sector, but not necessarily going out there and reaching out to other sectors that they could potentially work within. So, so for example, we went to an architecture conference, uh, didn't know the first thing about architecture, but we could see the potential of immersive technology in there. They already use 3D models. They seem to be kind of keen on moving into interactive spaces, visualization, virtual reality is perfect for that. Let's go in there and be the only company in the room that can offer these services and be confident about it. Go out there and, and kind of present yourself as an expert in it but still talk in layman's terms, still be able to kind of verbalize what you're doing. And that's really that kind of outlook of trying to showcase ourselves and trying to look to the sectors that may need us rather than waiting for them to discover us. That's been key to changing our client base from just being people we know, which is really valuable and we're very grateful to them, but to really grow as a company, you have to reach out to these other people. So now we have international clients now we find ourselves exhibiting or talking at trade shows that aren't just the video game world. We've got one of our teams out at Gamescom at the moment as I speak, but we'll appear at all sorts of different trade shows and try and have a presence there. And that's been so vital and, and learning about, you know, sit there and actually listen to what their challenges are, what these different industries, what they're trying to solve and how you could possibly fit into that. On top of seeking out and taking on innovative and interesting clients, Draw and Code also wanted to create their own products, the first of which was Swapbots. So Swapbots are toys that magically come to life when you point your phone or your tablet app at them using augmented reality. Phil told me that Draw and Code's vision is to revolutionise the way that children play, both with toys and with each other. That's by bridging the gap between physical and digital interaction. 
how do they go about funding such projects? After all, the income just doesn't come straight in the way it does with a client. This means that sourcing funding is the order of the day, and a company's three main avenues were the UK Games Fund, crowdfunding, and angel investment. I started off by asking about the latter. Well, we've been very, very grateful to our angel investors. Um, we've basically, uh, we looked into our first angel investor. I've got to be honest. It was basically very, very uh, fortuitous. So um, a kind of a personal and business connection, basically, um, turned out to be interested in what we were doing and uh, have the means to, to help fund it, basically. So okay. um, that was a few years ago now. Um, so that was at the very beginning of our product journey. We wouldn't have been able to do what we're doing. What we're doing with SwapBots, so SwapBots is a physical toy. That's what we're selling. Yes, it is a video game. Video games is what we do. But um, we had to go and manufacture some toys. So we really depended on, on funding um, at an early stage. So, yeah, and then it's been later on in kind of, I'd still say we're kind of seed rounds. This is terminology that if you don't take any interest in, in investments, uh, um, you just don't know about as well. So that's that's the big thing for, for me is that we've been learning this whole time about this world. And yeah, we've, we're essentially um, just approaching various people and asking them at any point that we can, um, would you like to contribute to this? Would you like to be a part of this? And we've ended up with a few backers um, who've basically got involved with the company and some of them have brought some specialist skills to the table as well. That is some some people from within um, the toy industry, for example. Yeah, yeah. Do you have an example of something that um, that an angel's helped you with that made a big difference? Well, the biggest thing I think has been to... They've almost impressed them as the need to run a good business. So we're making what we hope is a good product. Um, we are making some hopefully fantastic things for, for clients, but you've got to keep your eye on the whole business, the whole organization. And that's something we are improving and improving, improving upon. And I think back a few years to the way we used to be, um, how disorganized we were at one point. And that has totally and utterly changed. We are so much better drilled in a business sense, both in terms of our project management side, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of, keeping an eye on on cash flow and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's such a such an important thing that you can, so many businesses will trip themselves up on, on those things. They will have great ideas and great products and fall down on these other fundamentals of business. Yeah, so yeah. I think that that's been really vital to have investors that have far more experience, far more of a handle on, on that sort of thing of what a successful business looks like. Um, mm -hmm. So they won't necessarily interfere, if, if that's the word, mm -hmm. um, with say the product we're delivering they're quite happy with that they they kind of share our vision with with those sort of things but they just think about the business as a whole and they impress that on us and now we think totally differently about it so the added bonus of angel investors is getting that extra layer of expertise on board Crowdfunding, on the other hand, is an entirely different story, though it's definitely a great option for sourcing funding if you're making something that's useful or interesting to the crowd. We often hear about how these campaigns can basically become full-time jobs in themselves. So what took Draw & Co down the Kickstarter route then? Well, our Kickstarter campaign for Swapbots, it, it kind of came about for a number of reasons. One reason is it gave us a way to just immediately start validating 
the product, seeing if it's something people want, immediately seeing what people's reaction to it is. Will they buy this? Will they have feedback on this? Um, it's a nice way of marketing ourselves as well. It's a good talking point, a good way to kind of kick off launching this whole concept. Um, but we were also, one of the things that kind of prompted us to go Kickstarter route is that we are part of um, an accelerator program in the US called Hacks. That's H-A-X, Hacks Boost Accelerator, based in San Francisco. And they're very much specialists in taking products that exist that are in development to market in the most kind of lean and efficient way possible. So I think the terminology would be kind of growth hacking and that kind of thing. So using relatively kind of cheap platforms and routes um, to kind of promote the product, get it out there, drive further sales and investment and Kickstarter is one of the tools they use. So we have them in our corner, basically kind of advising us on how to do that. So that was, it was a really good route for us to take for a number of reasons. It also meant obviously we could then get a bit more cash towards um, producing the product. So, you know, in all respects, not just the funding side, it, it was a really, really good thing for us to do. On the other hand though, we are selling a toy that appeals to children. Our target market is five to 11 years old. And anybody who has children will know that the kids want things yesterday. Um, my little lad, he almost cries if I say you can have something tomorrow, let alone if I say, yeah, you can have it a year's time when this Kickstarter is finished <laughs> and fulfilled. You know, that's a really, really tough sell to kids. So what I would say is if you're somebody who's thinking of using a Kickstarter for a video game, um, I'd think carefully about your audience. So we were effectively having to market it towards the parents, basically, and saying, and, and to early adopters of technology. So they have really good demographic information around Kickstarters, and you can figure a lot of it out yourselves because you get the details of backers. Um, you can send them surveys. They can fill things out so you can find out more about them yourself. And we're finding that despite us saying this will be children and parents that we're selling to, we found ourselves actually selling to um, single males without children who were around 30 years old and based in America and typically working in software development, you know, technology generally. And that was who we were selling to. And then we realized that is the Kickstarter audience. So, mm. you know, if I went and put, um, you know, if I'm selling a technology, straight up technology product, product and I put it in a toy shop, it's going to be children and parents in there. So I may not sell it. And this was vice versa where children and, and their parents aren't necessarily showing up at Kickstarter. It is very much this kind of tech, tech savvy audience. So, yeah. yeah, we just found that it was it was a big challenge to adjust our message and the product to kind of suit that audience. But in, yeah, it, it was a really good step for us to take. And I definitely advise people to go that route, but just tread carefully, think about what you're doing. Yeah. Well, tell me then, what, what do you have to think about in advance? Um, was there a lot of preparation work that went into it before you launched it? Well, as, as luck would have it, um, we had um, a woman called Annie who came and joined our team just before that launch, she'd actually been part of a, a kind of, well, she'd set up a company um, that helped deliver Kickstarter products um, and projects. Uh, were crowdfunding generally, basically specialists. So she kind of brought that knowledge. That was very handy at the planning stage. Basically, we, we planned it out around, um, we had a series of events because we felt that the thing with Kickstarter, we didn't have a mega marketing budget. Um, we're novices at PR. We're not a PR company. Just always remember when you're making a video game, 
people say, I'll go and kind of PR something yourself. I'll go and set up a press kit page and all this kind of thing. But just remember, it's not what you do. You make a video game. So unless you employ somebody or have somebody who's, who's you know, willing to do work for you for little or nothing, then doing that yourself is not going to be easy. So think about what the kind of quick wins will be and what you can do. So we were basically trying to set up shop at as many trade shows as possible, joining up with people like Yuki um, to try and showcase our things and, and very much trying to leverage every last little opportunity there was to get up on a stage and talk about what we do. We actually organized a party in our own office. Basically, we figured it'd be a hell of a lot cheaper to just get a load of pizza and beer in and invite lots and lots of contacts that we all have between us and beg and plead with them to back our Kickstarter than it would be to actually run some adverts to try and may or maybe not reach these people. So we just basically went really hands-on with it. And yeah. even though it's a digital thing, we primarily try to reach people face-to-face. Is That was our tactic with it. Right. Um, and yeah, basically we did hit our target. Only just, I've got to be honest with it. You know, we, it was um, the big thing that boosted us. Kickstarter didn't just give us a the projects we love badge, but they actually featured us as part of their newsletter. Yeah. We were on the kind of main page and everything. So that was really incredible for us. Um, without that, would we have made the target? I don't know. Um, you know, we don't know exactly where these people came from yeah. as such, but um, was, was there I, think, any... I think we'd have struggled. Yeah. Was there any particular way, do you know why you got featured? Was there any trick there? There is no trick, I'm afraid. That's the bad <laughs> news. So, so it's not something you can game at all. Um, there, there really is people who are just curating it yeah. um, on Kickstarter and they just genuinely look for the projects they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the only way that, looking back at it, we didn't do this, but I think the only way you could possibly do that is A, to make your product a bit zeitgeisty. Um, I imagine if you had something that fitted into certain kind of hot technology or cultural kind of subjects or things that work well on Kickstarter. If you say board games work well there, for example, you know, maybe you'd have more of a chance of doing that than with, with other products, you know, getting featured. Yeah. But generally you can't game it. I think you've just got to be, you've got to be delivering a savvy Kickstarter-worthy product mm-hmm. anyway. That's the only way. What was your target? Our target was £25,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is amazing and was a really good step along the way but obviously does not fund the full product um i literally can't tell you off the top of my head even if i wanted to every cost that's gone into Swapbox. but between our time you know we plowed profits uh, from the company back in Swapbox. obviously there's been investment um you know we've there's been a lot of different kind of funding sources so yeah it was really important we kind of hit our target in the it was a target for ourselves as much as anything to say can we just hit what is by the standards of, of you know a, a business a relatively modest target um can we can we hit that you know uh, and for us it is kind of a bit of validation really as yeah. much as anything so yeah. the funds are very useful and very grateful for them but it was it was almost feeling like wow we've actually reached some people here and and they've you know seen enough potential in what we're doing to back us so i think it was almost this it was kind of a big boost for us in a, in a personal and motivational sense, really, as much as anything, that yeah. target. Yeah, it's almost market research as well as the, the funds itself. Did, did you, what kind of rewards did you offer? Obviously, I'd imagine you gave um, toys as part of it, but were, was there anything else you added to make it more unique for Kickstarter? In terms of the rewards we offered, we also offered things like clothing and we offered... Um, experiences where people could come and visit our studio and design their own swap bot and that kind of thing. 
generally people just wanted to buy the toys and, and play the game. That's what people were interested in. I think it's good to add these rewards and you never know, you know, I've seen a really quirky one at the moment for um, a really good uh, internet radio station based in Liverpool called Melodic Distraction. And you can basically have dinner in Peru with one, one of their team. Really odd prize, <laughs> but, you know, I think it gets attention. I think it's unlikely somebody will buy that, yeah. but it sticks in your memory. It's stuck in my mind. Yeah. And um, so I think it's good to do that. And I think especially when, I think for us, we had a physical reward anyway, because you have a toy. Um, so that's integral to what we're doing. I think if you were doing a straight up video game, it was just a download. So for example, I, I was mentioning earlier, Toe Jam and Earl, um, the Toe Jam and Earl Kickstarter. So I got toys and a, a t-shirt with that. So it meant that it keeps people happy until the actual game is produced. Mm. That took years to produce. Yeah. Um, so I think that having something solid and tangible like that, that can be sent to backers immediately to say, this is for real. We're really working on this and here's your reward immediately. Yeah. I think that's a really valuable thing to do. And I think looking back, we'd have done more physical rewards that could have been sent right. immediately if, if we'd have, uh, yeah, if, if we'd have kind of been a bit more savvy with it. Interesting. Would you do it again? Good question. Would we do a Kickstarter again? Yes, I'd say so, but we'd do it differently. <laughs> How so? Um, as I say, better rewards. Uh-huh. Um, and I would, I'd, I'd probably say that we'd do it later in the process of making the game because we are keeping backers waiting. We're very grateful for their faith in backing us in the first place and for keeping that faith over many months. Um, so I think that just uh, so that we had something more solid to to promote and offer them at the time Mm. the game would have been further along and i think that um it would also be nicer for them that they would have been closer to especially because some of them will be buying it even though saying most of our buyers are not actually for children um children are impatient uh, and we would want to give them that toy as soon as possible so i think so so yeah i I think the the concept of doing a kickstarter is sound but i think that there are just slightly different approaches we would have taken with it yeah do you think there's any one sort of most important aspect of making a, a Kickstarter work? Like, where would you spend your time on in a Kickstarter marketing campaign if you only had a limited amount? That's a good question. We we only did have a limited amount um, to to spend, both in terms of time and and money, and um, on the Kickstarter. So, I think the video is vital. I think. The good concept in the video and executing it relatively professionally is good, but also the actual product that can sell itself if it's good enough. So I think making sure the product that you're offering is at a good stage and you can show some really good, either a prototype of it. Well, you have to have a prototype. You will be without something to show. You cannot have a Kickstarter. You can't just go in there with a, a drawing of what it may be like. Um, there is literally stipulations around what you can do. So yeah, getting the kind of product as, as fully developed, a really good video, and just making sure you have opportunities to reach out to people personally wherever possible. Yeah. Um, I think getting all those boxes ticked is really important. Um, and yeah, and kind of just make sure you have a good social media presence as well. That won't sell itself in, in and of itself, but, but try and do that. And try and wherever possible, just get advice from people who have, have experience of launching a Kickstarter because chances are you'll only ever do one so you won't go in there with experience so if you find somebody you know somebody who's done an unsuccessful kickstarter even get their advice yeah absolutely what um what's the next stage for swap bots then 
So the next stage for Swapbox is to deliver the toy and game to our backers um, that backed us on Kickstarter. So um, we're at a stage now where we, um, yeah, where we're basically, we have all the toys. They are manufactured. They are produced. I've got a couple of boxes sat in front of me here. We have several thousand of them. Um, and they are kind of ready to go in themselves, but the actual video game is not quite finished. Um, so right now we are absolutely just heads down trying to complete it. Um, and it's a really exciting time for it. It's all coming together now. Um, the, the current demo we have is, is really exciting um, because everything works, everything looks good, everything sounds good. Um, we're just trying to just flesh out the game and the narrative as much as possible. Um, but the actual kind of core gameplay, the characters, it's all in there, basically. It's, it's fantastic. So that is the next stage of SwapBots. But looking beyond that, um, the stage after, the kind of medium-term stage, is then selling the toy online. So we're going to be on Amazon Launchpad. We have a slot booked on that. If you can, if you're making a physical product, you can be a part of Amazon Launchpad, be a part of it. Um, and then beyond that retailers so that would be primarily the US really is what we're targeting mm. so we've actually sat down with big US retailers we actually have a, a retail sales agent in the US who's put us in front of Target who sell more toys than any other retailer in the world including Amazon um, we've sat down with with Apple the, the Apple store uh, very briefly so loads of Tim Cook while doing that amazingly um, and Best Buy all sorts of really big US retailers that are really inter- interested in augmented reality products it is exciting and last but not least was the funding provided by the uk games fund so we applied for uk games fund um it was late 2016 so what stage that was in the product was we had very early stage prototypes we had not yet gone to kickstarter so when we got uk games Fund, it really neatly kind of funded us up to the kickstarter stage um, our funding basically from UK Games Fund finished the same month that the Kickstarter began, which was quite incredible. So um, so it was a really vital stage because whenever you launch a, a kind of product, there is this, there are many stages, everything has to be funded, everything costs something, but there's a, kind of that pre-launch, you have an initial idea, you can sketch it out, you can start to do your own little concepts and prototypes. But once things start getting serious and you need to dedicate a lot of resources to it, yet you're nowhere near a stage where you can actually make money from uh, real customers or, or, or however you're making your money. It's that gap in between, and UK Games Fund was just perfect for that. It just filled that gap absolutely perfectly and enabled us to get to, uh, not quite to market, I don't think it's the word, but, but to get to a launch of sorts with the Kickstarter launch. And it just enabled us to kind of plug that gap, and that is so hard to do. And we were so grateful. The timing of it was perfect. Um, and the way that UK Games Fund works as well is brilliant. So anybody who's applied for it or has, has you know, been lucky enough to, to be granted support by them will know this, um, that not only is it quite relatively easy to apply for compared to some funding um, in terms of the forms and that kind of thing, the people there will answer any questions you give them promptly, fast, they will help you with whatever and you have to justify what you're doing but you do that via videos and they're not videos to be shared with the public so don't worry if you're no good at speaking on camera you literally just have to talk about it and you probably spend all your days talking about this product you're going to make anyway so you literally just have to just chat with them basically you just point a camera at yourself 
just pick up your phone and just go, hey, this is what we've done this month. Do you want to have a look at a game with me? Um, we've made progress here. We've designed a new character. Here's the team we're working on it. And it's just so, so, so easy to do. So yeah, definitely, um, it's like we're so glad that we did. So SwapBots is undoubtedly a success story. But just like any other success story, there's been trials, tribulations, and a lot of lessons learned along the way. I wanted to tap into that as we got wrapped up by asking Phil what advice he had for others and what he wished he'd known before he got started. I think the, the big thing that I would say to people that, that I wish we knew at the time when we first started making SwapBots was just what a different world we were going into. So we went into making physical hardware and it meant that it just took us so far out of our comfort zone. And we were already as a work for hire company delivering projects for clients to app stores or however they wanted distributed. We were used to that. But to actually go out there and say, we have to build, we have to fund, we have to sell a physical product. I just wish we'd have asked more advice of people. I wish we'd have gone to more specialist people, not been afraid to just go to, say, a toy show and just ask every person we can, we're going to launch a toy. What do you do? Can you help us with it? And just just ask more and more people about that rather than just muddling through with everything. In terms of technology, we know that well. In terms of video game technology specifically and the world of video games, we know that well. We don't know enough, but we know enough to get by and to make a good product and you're always learning so you never know enough but in terms of this this whole of the world that we're going into it's just educate yourself on it and if you are making a racing game speak to people who know about car racing if you're making an esports game actually go and speak to something like esl or go and actually get involved in the world of esports don't just go i'm making a game that i think would appeal to any sports audience actually go and learn about the market you're going for big time just speak to people speak to people speak to people and just try and the other piece of advice is just be as organized as possible use time tracking software try and understand where your time is going into because time is the, the kind of best asset that you have thanks for listening to the first season of inside indie games and I've got just one ask for you just now. Find us on Twitter at UK Games Fund and tell us who you want to hear on a future episode. We'll do our best to track them down and bring them on. And if you want to find out more about us too, hop over to UKGamesFund.com. See you in the next episode. <laughs>